0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 34 of Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. My name is Michael Bradley, your host on this show celebrating seven decades of the world's finest heroes. From radio to comics, toy lines and underoos, animation and a soon-to-be major motion picture, Superman and Batman have teamed in virtually every medium. And this is the show that celebrates it all. Each episode, I pick a Superman and Batman story from throughout the years, usually chosen at random and usually from the pages of world's finest comics. I read it, discuss it, mock it, and just generally revel in the awesomeness that is the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. In the last regular episode of the show, we looked at a story from the early days of the Silver Age of Comics but this time, the randomizer is sending us more than two decades into the future for a look at a Bronze Age comic in the form of World's Finest Comics number 259. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the issue was released July 19th, 1979. And this this was in the middle of the bi-monthly dollar comics era for the title. So it's got an October-November 1979 cover date and 64 pages for the price of $1.00. Our cover is by Rich Buckler and Dick Giordano, and it shows Superman and Batman frantically trying to stop a horde of people from crossing a bridge, presumably the bridge that links their two cities. In the Bronze Age, various DC stories had maps that placed Metropolis in the northeastern edge of Delaware and Gotham in the southwest edge of New Jersey, separated by the Delaware Bay, but linked by what was called the Metro Narrows Bridge. Uh, For what it's worth, those same maps also place Smallville in Delaware, just outside of Metropolis, with Midvale, which is where Supergirl spent her formative years, being located somewhere in between, but close enough to Metropolis to be considered a suburb of that city. And something that might come as a surprise to a lot of people is that placing Smallville in Kansas wasn't something that was done until Superman the Movie in 1978 which also moved Metropolis northward to be New York City, but called Metropolis. But interestingly, even though the tradition of putting Smallville in Kansas rightly can be traced back there, the idea of Superman growing up in the Midwest actually can be traced all the way back to the radio show, the same place Superman and Batman had their first team-up, where a 1947 story placed Superman's boyhood home as being in Iowa. Now, it wasn't called Smallville there, because the town where Superman grew up wasn't named until uh, Superboy number 2 in 1949. But the town was said to be near Centerville, which is a small town in the southern part of the state near the Missouri border. But later comics put Smallville on the east coast near Metropolis until Superman the Movie and the Burn reboot moved it back to the Midwest, where it has traditionally been located in Kansas ever since with Metropolis remaining on the East Coast. I thought it was fun that the TV show Smallville kept Smallville in Kansas, but also held to the idea of it being near Metropolis by flipping that uh, classic script and moving Metropolis to Kansas, possibly as a stand-in for Kansas City, much like it had been a stand-in for New York in the movie. Uh, But because Smallville was filmed primarily in Vancouver, Canada, we get mountains and Indian caves and seaside ports and other non-Midwestian aspects for both Smallville and Metropolis, but they did use a a CGI-altered version of the Chicago skyline in the last season or so to represent Metropolis, so that's a little closer in not a lot of ways, but at least it could still be considered the Midwest. I think Gotham City has, for the most part, always been located on the East Coast. Uh, Its position has moved around in various incarnations and maps, but I think traditionally it's always been in that New York, New Jersey region. Uh, Admittedly, I'm less familiar with the changes there, so if I'm wrong, someone please write in and let me know. But throughout all the reboots, Metropolis and Gotham have usually been in, in somewhat close proximity to one another, even if it is a, a several hours long drive rather than you know just across the bay, so to speak, I personally don't have a stake in it. Uh, like so many things, I do enjoy the 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 nerdity of trying to figure it all out, and I like the idea that they are located close to one another. But you know, it, it isn't something that would typically affect my enjoyment of the books, even if it isn't something that's portrayed with a uh, a strict consistency. But back to the comic. So we see Superman and Batman trying to stop this horde of people. And Superman is screaming, Has Gotham gone crazy? Invading Metropolis? And one of the people trying to get across the bridge yells back at him, Out of the way, heroes! Even you can't stop 8 million people! Now, I did some googling, and according to the New Jersey Department of Labor and Workforce Development, the population of Estimate The population estimate of the entire state of New Jersey, remember the state where D.C. was putting Gotham at this time, was about 7.3 million people. And I thought, well, okay, you know, in my perception, Gotham and Metropolis are meant to be among the biggest cities in the country. So I did more Googling, and according to the census from 1980, which was a year after this came out, the population of New York City was just more than 7 million people. So this 8 million figure is really out of proportion to anything going on in the U.S. at the time. And I don't bring that up as a criticism per se, because it just doesn't matter. But it's it's more of an observation. And I don't know if it's just an honest mistake or if they intentionally overshot that New York number. But it does give some scope to exactly what batman is charged with protecting even with the aid of the rest of the bat family and other heroes who would happen to uh, reside inside gotham that's a lot of people under his protection so that's just something to think about but as for the cover itself i really like the art Uh, buckler and giordano are both pros and the heroes look awesome as always all the civilians have unique looks. You know, their, their heads aren't just circles with two dots in a line. They have unique faces and hair and, and body types. It's all wonderful. They, the only thing is, I'm just not convinced it's such a great cover. It works, but others around this time were much more attention-grabbing and, and much more dynamic in their presentation. Though that could just be my, you know my approach or my preference I should say uh, because it it, it is a very well illustrated cover so turning inside we've got our 16 page lead story featuring our heroes and credits are actually in the book this time so we've got writer Denny O'Neill, artists Richard F. Buckler and Dick Giordano letterer Ben Oda, colorist Gene D'Angelo editor Julie Schwartz and Jack C. Harris Superman, created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. Batman, created by Bob Kane. And Bill Finger, though it seems his name is missing again. Maybe it just got obscured by that cloud there. I, I, I'm, I'm sure that's it. Another quick note, as, as you heard, the editing on the story is credited to Julie Schwartz and Jack Harris. According to the Grand Comics Database, this is because there was a plan around this time to convert World's Finest Comics ...to a standard-sized book and move it under Schwartz's office. That plan ultimately didn't happen, obviously, but this story and ones from an issue or two after this... ...had already been done and or, or were at least underway, so Schwartz gets a, a co-editing credit. Our story begins with a splash page showing Superman and Batman in the middle of a prehistoric landscape... ...complete with a dinosaur and smoldering volcano watching on in surprise as two pink-skinned aliens in space helmets and green pants bury a strange yellow object in the ground. This never happened. Hmm. Oh. Okay then. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Feel free to send your questions and... Co- no, I'm, I'm just kidding. This never happened. But as Superman and Batman had chanced to travel 100 million years back in time... They would have observed explorers from the planet Sirius Five bury a strange mineral, and they would understand the strange and terrible reason why a mighty urban center of today is becoming Gotham City, Ghost City. So we open in Gotham City, where the totally awesome Batman is doing what he does best, kicking butt and taking names on a superstitious and cowardly lot of criminals. Dropping them off at the police station, the sergeant says he'll lock them up, but isn't sure it'll do any good because Gotham's judges, along with most of the law enforcement officers and almost everyone else in the city, is leaving town for unknown reasons. In Metropolis, Superman sees a horde of people streaming across the bridge connecting the two cities. However, when the span starts to give way under the weight, the Man of Steel is forced to dive into action, shoring up the structure and repairing the wrenched metal with a blast of heat vision. The Gotham residents flooding in the metropolis aren't able to tell Superman why they're leaving their homes, only that they felt a sudden urge, which leaves Superman to puzzle about just what's going on. Back in Gotham, faithful butler Alfred Pennyworth tenders his resignation to a surprised but mostly apathetic Bruce Wayne. As Alfred exits, suggesting his former employee get some sleep for the first time in days... Superman arrives and the world's finest heroes puzzle over the mass exodus from Gotham. Batman references the disappearance at the colony of Roanoke, Virginia, and a similar occurrence in the Cambodian city of Angkor Wat, though neither provide any clues as to what's happening in Gotham. Batman gets a call from Commissioner Gordon, who says a petty man named Winx Cravane is claiming responsibility in demanding $20 million. In disbelief, Batman heads out to investigate the claim while Superman goes to check on the mass migration. Because someone should be keeping an eye on things after a bridge nearly collapsed. Superman returns to the riverfront just in time to save a group of people from getting run over by a tanker making its way into the bay. A meeting with Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen informs Superman that police and health officials are having trouble dealing with this huge influx of people. Back in Gotham, Batman tracks down Winks, who is stupid enough to try to attack Batman with a stick. When that goes as well as expected, as in, not at all, Batman convinces Winks to fess up that his claim was all a lie, made up during a bout of insomnia in order to grab some quick money. Later, when Batman meets back up with Superman in the Batcave, he explains he's figured out that people from certain areas of the city were affected first with the affected range radiating out from there towards city limits. Batman guesses something is buried in the center of that area, causing people who are asleep to have an urge to leave the city. The fact that it only affects people when they're asleep would explain why Batman, the police sergeant and Winks, and likely others, have yet to have the desire. Flying into the sky and arcing back downwards, Superman drills deep into the Earth, at the location pinpointed by Batman. Upon reaching the outer core, Superman discovers a strange alien object. Writing on the blob is similar enough to Kryptonian that Superman can read it, and confirms Batman's suspicions, and the Man of Steel tosses the item into orbit for safekeeping. Returning to Metropolis, Superman discovers a similar object buried there. He tosses it into orbit as well, surmising the two objects worked like poles of a magnet, with one repelling and the other attracting. Later, Superman explains what happened to Jimmy and Lois and promises to make it his business to find out who the aliens were that planted the items. He then sets about returning people to their homes as the sounds of cheers echo through the streets and Batman sleeps soundly in the Batcave. The End And what a weird story. Um, I liked this even though it does have a couple significant issues. The most glaring thing is that the story lacks a real resolution. It just kind of stops. We find out that it was these blobs planted by the aliens that caused the mass exodus, but that was telegraphed from the splash page, where we saw aliens burying the objects. We never find out who the aliens are or why they planted them, or you know what goal they hope to achieve by planting these objects that, millions of years later, would move whatever life forms, possibly happen to dev- to evolve in that particular area of a random planet, a few miles west. It's kind of like watching a whodunit with the death of a I don't know a wealthy businessman, and you weave an intricate set of clues and then reveal in the last scene that it was the mailman, and then roll credits. You find out who, but not why. So it leaves you, it leaves you hanging, and it it makes the entire thing kind of fall flat, even though it was a, a decent enough setup. We had a nice mystery in that premise of the mass exodus from Gotham to Metropolis, and I really liked how Denny O'Neill laid in clues throughout the story about it only affecting people when they were asleep, but without any explanation of why the aliens would do this tens of millions of years ago it just doesn't make a lot of sense also one assumes that Superman would eventually retrieve these blobs from you know where he threw them into orbit around the earth but much like any investigations Superman might do into the aliens that's not addressed in this or as far as I know any other story and on a related note there's the scene with Alfred getting the urge to leave and tendering his resignation. I guess we can assume that he comes back once Superman got rid of these alien objects, but that's not addressed in the story. And while I realized that in this era, Alfred wasn't the one who raised Bruce, he was still a fatherly figure and a friend and a confidant to Bruce. And one would think that Alfred quitting would elicit much more of a response than, Take care, Alfred! It's just a poorly done scene for someone who is such an important character to the Batman mythos, and it's worsened by the fact that it, that it not only adds nothing to the story, but it's never followed up on. The other issue I had, which is much more minor, is that at times this felt less like a Superman-Batman team-up and more like a Batman story featuring Superman. But they both had their place in the story, uh, as Superman points out towards the end. Batman was the brains, while you know he did the heavy lifting. So while it would have been nice to see more true team-up action beyond the two of them standing around the Batcave, you know I I, I do want to stress that that's a that that really is a more minor point. This issue does serve as a good showcase for both characters, and we got some great action scenes of each hero. Uh, putting them into what can be the most exciting situations with those characters. On Batman's side, we open the story with him kicking butt and taking names against these criminals. And then later he chases down Winx, which leads to a, a, a great sequence. Batman confronts Winx, who is a criminal. So he is stupid, which means he runs, and then we get a series of panels telling how Winx goes across the lobby, up an elevator, into his apartment. He locks uh, four locks and sets the burglar alarm, and then he turns around and Batman is standing right behind him. Uh, it, it gave me a, a a real Batman the Animated Series type of vibe, and the, the dialogue would have been would not have been out of place there either. So it's kind of this. Uh, quintessential or, or uh, classic Batman scene. For Superman's part, we get a couple great rescues, with, first with the bridge collapse near the beginning of the story, and then later as Superman saves some people who are swimming from Gotham to Metropolis uh, as they are about to get hit by a tanker. Uh, you can almost hear the John Williams music. As you, as you see people about to get run over, and then Superman lifts, lifts the, uh, the boat into the air and flies off. And it's really the art that elevates these scenes to the next level. And, and the whole issue, really. Rich Buckler is such a great artist, making every page and all the characters look dynamic. And then Dick Giordano's inking, you know, just takes it up another notch. Uh, panels are detailed. Characters look great. There are backgrounds and interesting layouts. I, I really have very little, if anything, to pick on about the art, um, which helped make the story more enjoyable, despite the flaws in the writing. I also noticed a few Easter eggs in the background of panels. On page 3, in the center panel, which is a streetscape, we see building facades for Lowe's Paradise Theater And something called Village Comic Art Shop. The Paradise Theater is a New York City landmark located in the Bronx. It originally opened in 1929, showing films and featuring live entertainment. It closed in the mid 90s and has gone through um, several ownership changes since then. And according to Wikipedia, it's currently being used as the New York headquarters for an Atlanta based televangelist, which is really random. But the Village Comic Art Shop was a popular New York City comic shop that opened in the late 1960s. It was owned by Bill Morse, who is a longtime comics retailer and someone who also did a little bit of lettering for DC Comics uh, in the uh, mid to late 70s. According to one site I found, the shop was located on the Avenue of Americas near West 4th Street, which means it would have been a pretty straight shot, and certainly within driving distance, from where both DC and Marvel offices were at this point. So it likely was a shop that was frequented by um, a lot of creators and employees of both companies. And the other Easter egg comes over on page 11 as Batman is swinging through the city. And in the background we see a billboard advertising Superman the movie which was released about seven months before this issue. So it was very likely still in theaters when the art for this issue was being produced. So, you know, overall, this issue isn't bad. We, we've definitely had worse on the show. Uh, the art really elevates it, like I said, and the story itself is decent. It's, it's just really frustrating and puzzling because there is no... Resolution regarding the aliens or or explanation about why they planted these uh, blobs millions of years ago that served as the catalyst for the story. And I do wonder if the editorial switch that I mentioned earlier with Julie Schwartz first taking the lead and then moving it over to uh, Jaxie Harris had something to do with that. Uh, It could be it just fell through the cracks because despite his work not always being to my taste... I, you know, I wouldn't call Danny O'Neill a bad writer unless he's writing the Super Sons but we'll get to that someday so that's all I've got to say about this story so we're going to take a break and then come back to look at the book's other features and what else was on the stands guys we finally developed our time machine should we use it to go back and see how Stonehenge was built or become friends with Hitler and convince him to stay in art school Or we could go back in time and get the comic books we missed.
1: Yeah! Yeah! The Comic Book Time Machine. A
0: journey back in time to explore comic books, good and bad. Whether from seven decades ago or seven days ago. Join our journey at ComicBookTimeMachine.com Yeah.
1: There's trouble. G.I. Joe is there. G.I. Joe, real American hero. G.I. Joe is there. It's G.I. Joe against Cobra and Destro, fighting to save the day. He never gives up. He's always there, fighting for freedom over land and air. G.I. Joe, real American hero. G.I. Joe is there. Attention, Joes. This is General Hawk. I have an important mission for you. I need you to listen to G.I. Joe, A Real American Headcast. It's a monthly podcast where Aaron Moss, Codename Head, and two other Joes, Ryan Daly and Kyle Benning, will be reporting on the comic book G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero. Previously published by Marvel, currently being published by IDW Comics. We'll also cover the special missions, the yearbooks, order battles, etc. To hear their message, report to G.I. Joe, dot, headspeaks.com or iTunes or Stitcher Radio. You can get further information at Facebook, Google Plus and Twitter, all under GI Joe, a real American headcast. Dismissed. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. GI Joe. GI Joe, a real American headcast is a proud member of the headcast family. The world he never gives up, he stay till the fight's won G.I. Joe will dare G.I. Joe G.I. Joe
0: If you would like to read this story Well, you'll have to track down the original issue Because like so many stories From issues of World's Finest Comics around this time It has not been reprinted Other features in the book include a 19-page Green Arrow and Hawkman team-up story by Jerry Conway, Don Newton, Dave Hunt, and Vince Coletta. There's also a 10-page Black Lightning story by Denny O'Neill, Michael Netzer, and Vince Coletta. And finally, there's a 10-page Captain Marvel story by E. Nelson Bridwell, Don Newton, and Kurt Schaffenberger titled The Secret of Mr. Tawny. And that is, I believe, the final pre-crisis appearance of the one and only talkie Tawny. Ad-wise, there are a few interesting things, so we'll take a look at those real quick. On the inside front cover, we have an ad for Star Trek The Motion Picture, which I have not seen in years, as I am uh, I'm not a huge fan of Star Trek stuff. I Not that I am not a fan, I just never really got into it, like a lot of the people that, uh, that I know and a lot of people that listen to this show. Uh, but this was a a big deal for the Star Trek franchise at the time finally uh, continuing their five year mission there's also a Wonder Woman hostess ad where the amazing Amazon saves a pair of astronauts by dropping hostess fruit pies from her invisible jet in space and is it weird that the part of this ad I take most issue with is Diana flying her plane in space In the back cover is an ad for Daisy Air Rifles, with an endorsement by a poorly drawn image of football great Johnny Unitas. Because, guns? But the last thing worth mentioning is a quarter-page ad which is actually buried in the middle of the book for superhero glue sticks, which you can buy at your favorite store and feature Superman, Wonder Woman, Spider-Man, and the Hulk. So take that, Batman you're a Batman fan and want to glue stuff, good luck using the rubber cement. But now it's time to head on over to Mike's Amazing World of Comics at mikesamazingworld.com for a look at what else was on the stands from DC Comics. And first up is Batman number 316, which features a fine Dick Giordano cover of a forced perspective shot of Batman and Robin diving into action against... Well, well, they're battling Crazy Quilt, which... You know, it's Crazy Quilt. But this is the first Bronze Age appearance of everyone's favorite Mort, so that's Crazy Quilt. Next is DC Comics Presents number 14, which has a team-up between Superman and Superboy. And I love this cover, too. Uh, It shows Superman shackled with kryptonite chains, and Superboy is firing a bazooka, With a kryptonite shell right at his chest. Uh, It's a lot of fun. If you want to hear more about the story inside the book, be sure to check out episode 14 of Russell Bragg's DC Comics Presents show where he covered it. Um, DC special series number 19 collects origins of some of DC's heroes, including the origin of the Superman-Batman team from World's Finest Comics number 94. And we haven't covered that here yet, but we'll eventually – I, I hope because it's it's a really uh, – I enjoy that story even though it is kind of goofy in parts. Uh, maybe I should just take a special episode and do that uh, sooner rather than later. But this digest has a great cover too. It, it shows Superman and Batman marching towards the reader with Wonder Woman on their shoulders. And uh, behind them there's a, there's a bevy of other heroes including Supergirl and Robin and Aquaman and uh, – Everyone's smiling. It's just a really, really great cover. Justice League of America, number 171, is part one of the summer's two-part JLA-JSA team-up. This one dealing with the death of Mr. Terrific. And then we get what I'm going to call the biggest book of the month. And that is Action Comics, number 500. 64 pages, no ads, and featuring the life story of the Man of Steel. And it's got a great infinite cover by Ross Andrew and Dick Giordano of Superman, Supergirl, and Lois holding an image of the cover of themselves holding the cover of themselves holding the cover and and so on. And behind them is a collage of some of the book's milestone issues including uh, the one where Supergirl is announced to the world and the wedding of the Earth to Superman – uh, Joe Schuster's iconic cover to Action Comics No. 1, and and more. And if you want to hear more about this issue, Charlie Niemeyer covered it back in 2012 on Superman in the Bronze Age, which, sadly, uh, that show's no longer in production, but it's still available online at supermaninthebronzeage.com for your listening pleasure. And uh, Charlie was on the show a few episodes back, and uh, he... he, he put out a great show which he unfortunately had to stop because uh he is a father now and and that takes a lot of time but do check out episodes of superman in the bronze age if if you haven't because i think you would really enjoy it and the let's see we've got uh brave and the bold number 155 where batman teams up with green lantern Uh, i haven't read this particular issue but it's bob haney so it's no doubt a good read And the last thing I see is Wonder Woman number 260. And I have no idea what's going on here. Uh, Wonder Woman's in chains and being led out of a courtroom. Everyone seems very angry. If you know what's going on here, write in and let me know. But that's it for our issue and the episode. So I want to thank you very much, as always, for joining me. Next time in episode 35. Next time. I'll be joined by J. David Weeder for a look at Brave and the Bold, number 192. But in the other next time, I'll be back the first Tuesday of October with another random issue of World's Finest Comics. I do know what I'm covering, but I'm not going to tell you. But I will give you the hint that it's from the Silver Age of Comics, which means it'll be incredibly wacky. Until then, as always, please send your thoughts, comments, questions whatever else you want to tell me via email or the website, and don't forget to keep sharing the love on Facebook and Twitter using the hashtag pound super bat Podcast. Uh, I'm trying to get better at the whole social media thing and hopefully I'll be able to incorporate some of that in the next feedback episode but thank you all again very much for listening and I will talk to you next time goodbye twice, I was warm, they had it going on. I got the my miles an hour. Thanks for listening to Superman and Batman. Hosted by me, Michael Bradley. Feedback can be sent to Michael at greatcrypton.com. I love hearing from listeners, so be sure to send your comments, questions, and other feedback, and I will likely read that on a future episode. Show notes, information, and back episodes can be found at greatcrypton.com. Be sure to follow the show via Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe via iTunes or RSS feed so that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe via iTunes, be sure to leave a review. Not only does it help others find the show, but I'd love to read that in a future episode as well. Superman and Batman is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, home to many great Superman-related podcasts. Be sure to pay them a visit at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. Batman was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, and both characters are copyright DC Comics. I want to thank you again very much for listening, and invite you to come back next time, for another episode of Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Like it, this episode's closing music was Public Enemies. Get the fuck out of Dodge from their 1991 album, Apocalypse 91, The Enemy Strikes Black. If you'd like to get this song or the album, the best way to do that is to head on over to 2 and click on the Amazon.com banner. Pick up a CD, digital download, or maybe even a giant clock to wear around your neck, and 2 True Freaks will get a little cut from every purchase. It won't cost you anything extra, but does help ensure a steady stream of fine 2 True Freaks-related podcasts. Yeah, boy!